Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you live your faith in the public arena. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me in studio is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Cross. Hey, Kit. Hey, welcome, everyone. We're so glad that you are joining us once again this week, and we have a great show ahead, and hope that you're having a very blessed time. You can catch the Bridge Builder program right here each week on your favorite Catholic radio station. But if you miss an episode or want to catch up on past episodes, just visit us at mncatholic.org slash podcast. Again, mncatholic.org slash podcast or look for the Bridge Builder on your favorite podcast app. Each week on the show, we try to bring you great interviews on some of the major issues impacting how we live our faith in the public arena. We also answer your questions in the mailbag segment, and you can email those to us at show at mncatholic.org or contact us on social media. And it wouldn't be the bridge builder if we didn't provide you with practical ways that you can start laying the bricks that build the bridge between faith and public life. In today's episode, we're talking about the Civil Rights Act and its impact that it continues to have on society today. We'll be speaking with Christopher Caldwell, the author of The Age of Entitlement, America Since the 60s. In our mailbag segment, we take a look at a case out of Philadelphia involving Catholic charities and its ability to continue to serve in the adoption context. And finally, stick around for our bricklayer segment. Now the election day has come to a close, what can you do to continue building bridges with elected officials to help transform our state? We're blessed to be joined on the line by Christopher Caldwell. He is a journalist and former senior editor at the Weekly Standard, as well as a regular contributor to Financial Times and Slate. He's a senior fellow at the Claremont Institute and a contributing editor to the Claremont Review of Books, and a very fine publication that I highly commend to our listeners. His writing also frequently appears in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and the Washington Post. He is the author of The Age of Entitlement, America Since the 60s, and he's joining us today to share a little bit more about that book and the message it has for us. Mr. Caldwell, welcome to the program. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. You state that your book, The Age of Entitlement, is about the crises that produced a new order of life in the United States, how that order was maintained, and the contradictions at the heart of it. Tell us a little bit more about the, the major thrust of the argument of that book. Well, you know, the book is a, it's a history. It's a history of um, our country between uh, the assassination of John F. Kennedy and the election of Donald Trump. Uh, and, and, and I think that, that there are certain themes that unite that period, you know. Um, one might be um, rock and roll. Another might be it's the period of the ascendancy of the baby boom. Um, but, but I think that, that, it, that an argument that runs through um, uh, a lot of it very strongly is the transformation in, in rights. The, the transformation in our idea of our Constitution. We had a Civil Rights Act that sort of changed the way we think about what we are supposed to do and what we can do as Americans. And I think that that might be at the root of a lot of our polarization today. Now, just to help our listeners understand the Civil Rights Act, what it did uh, really, and it's something passed in 1964 by Congress meant to ameliorate long-term systemic discrimination against African Americans, particularly in the Jim Crow South. But also at the same time, what it does is it puts, as all non-discrimination laws do, they they put limits on people's freedom of association. So it seems to me that your argument is that whole uh, intent and in law that was meant to rem- remedy a particular problem and has ended up in American law and culture taking on a life of its own. Is that an accurate description of things? That's very accurate. And, you know, I think that, that 
I'm very grateful for um, the reception that the the book has had. I think that a lot of people have read the book. I've got a lot of intelligent commentary on it. But if I if if there's one way in which people have kind of misunderstood the book, they it is by sort of thinking of it as being about the situation as it existed in 1964, or about kind of calling into question the civil rights movement or the Civil Rights Act. It doesn't do that. What it, what it does is it talks about the way that impulse has been transformed uh, uh, over the succeeding decades into something that's very different and really a lot more than the country bargained for at the time. So um, while the words affirmative action were in the Civil Rights Act, the idea of affirmative action that we have today, which is of a sort of like government-targeted shape of individual workforces and individual uh, uh, companies, that that did not exist. The idea of busing students for integration did not exist. The idea of um, a very well-developed government program to re to reconstitute the ethnic population of certain neighborhoods that didn't exist either and so over time it became a much more ambitious uh, project than was in the law itself say a little bit more about the way in which the civil rights act as a in, an impulse as you described it ended up taking on a life of its own outside of the racial discrimination context yeah, well, you know, I think in an effort to get it passed, uh, the Civil Rights Act was broadened. And um, that's a, actually, this is a much discussed part of American history. But, you know, if you look at the text of the Civil Rights Act, um, I, you know, there, there was a gap between what the American public uh, wanted out of the Civil Rights Act and what the Civil Rights Act was on paper. I think that what the American public wanted was an end to the spectacle of racial um, uh, segregation, of de jure uh, racial segregation that they were seeing on TV. And that is, you know, uh, uh, demonstrations stopped by police in a rather brutal way with fire hoses and attack dogs and and the idea of unequal rights. And um, that's what they thought of the Civil Rights Act as doing, and that's what it did. But the actual way it did it was much more ambitious than that. The Civil Rights Act covered, you know, immigrant status. Well, it covered women. You know, it covered gender, national origin, race, creed, um, and eventually immigrant status, Vietnam veteran status, language uh, community, um, sexual orientation, uh, gender self-description. And so it became a much larger it became a much larger um, type of, of legislation. And I should stress, the way that it grew was just as important as the fact that it grew. It grew not by successive bursts of legislation, but by a gradual reinterpretation by judges and by regulators. And so the result was to leave a lot of Americans feeling left out of the Uh, of the way the law was shaped. We're speaking with Christopher Caldwell. He is the author of the book, The Age of Entitlement, America Since the 60s, and a regular contributor to Financial Times and Slate, as well as a contributing editor to the Claremont Review of Books. Mr. Caldwell, say a little bit more about that. Is there a way in which 
the, uh, the, the impulse of the whole uh, dynamic surrounding the Civil Rights Act and its effects and the way in which it grew and was interpreted by judges? Did it create uh, resent, resentment and polarization? Is that uh, essentially what you're seeing happening? Yeah, there were a number of very complex things that happened. Um, uh, maybe I can just talk about two of them. One is you had a kind of a short-circuiting in the way government naturally worked. And so that's how you got, um, for instance, um, bilingual education. You, you, you know, there was a case called Lao in, in 1974 that said that, you know, which a judge that immigrants had the right to educate, if they didn't speak English, had the right to educate their kids in their own language. And that, that was really a, uh, 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 quite a quite an extraordinary step, okay, uh, which which revolutionized education across the, the country. But the Department of Education then wrote these Lao guidelines, you know, mandating, you know, that that that, that school districts had to do this and that, and then the judges would take a look at those guidelines and judge whether school districts were obeying them. And then they would add more. They would say, no, no what, what school districts have to do in order to obey them is establish programs in this way. And so you had this, this you know, root and branch transformation of the American educational system, which at that time was still a purely local thing. Um, you had it transformed in a way that no one had voted on, um, either at the federal or at the local level. So you had a kind of a short-circuiting of the, the, the democracy. But a second thing that happened is that as the, as the let's say, the ambit of, um, uh, of civil rights expanded, you know, out of, you know, segregation in the South and into things like whether women were sufficiently represented in, in corporate boardrooms or whether there was enough Spanish programming on a certain um, internet network. As it expanded into uh, into those things, the number of people who were helped by civil rights legislation were no longer a minority. That is, if they if all of the people who got some benefit out of these judicial and bureaucratic interventions joined together in a political block, then they would be they could be in many cases. A majority, and 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 so they would have this second system of protecting their rights, and that's what we mean when we talk about a majority-minority um, polity. It's what we mean when what people on the left mean when they talk about intersectionality. And so you reached a point, and I think that that point was reached when when people started in the talking in the 1980s about people of color. You reached a point where um, civil rights was protecting everybody except uh, except except heterosexual white males, and and so they became heterosexual white males became to that extent a kind of second class citizen in in, in 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 the country, and I think that you know one doesn't want to be too crude about this process, but the, the, you know there is a lot of this that is behind I think a lot of the polarization that we see in the country right now.
So when you talk about the age of entitlement, you're speaking of actual legal entitlements, but also a, a cultural phenomenon as well. Well, you know, my idea in talking about a legal, uh, an age of entitlement is something very different, actually. And I sort of, I, I sometimes regret having used that title because I think it can, it, it can mislead to what I'm talking about. The age of entitlement that I talk about is, um, it has to do with, um, with the country that resulted, and specifically with the, with the deficit financing culture that we have now. These programs um, that arose from the civil rights era, not just um, these anti-discrimination laws, but also the, you know, the great society programs that were, um, that were carried out to make them possible, they were extremely expensive. They, um, as, um, as Robert Rector, I believe, of, of the Heritage Foundation um, says, you can, you know, if you calculate them a certain way, they came into the, they, they, they run into the tens of trillions of dollars. The, the act to make um, our inner cities livable, to even uh, the playing field for, for historic injustice, that was really expensive. Uh, how the country was going to pay for it was really an open question. And, and in fact, in the late 1970s, uh, the country really declared through a number of, you know, through it at the ballot box, that it was unwilling to pay for them. On the other hand, our social peace seemed to rest on these programs. And so we had a, we had a world in which we were spending money as if we had these programs, but taxing the public as if we did not. So you had um, each side of the, um, of, the, of, of, of the most serious political argument of our time thought it was getting um, its way. And that's what I mean by the age of entitlement. That, that you know, no Republican was going to have to give up, uh, you know, uh, an aircraft carrier or a, uh, or, or a B-1 bomber in order that a Democrat um, could have a new sort of, uh, uh, you know, like community center or uh, national park. Do you know what I mean? Sure. Yeah. Pork barrel spending all around and these things weren't going to be trade-offs. Right. So right. you yeah, book right. you, you bookend the age of entitlement from the Civil Rights Act enactment to the first election of Donald Trump. We're airing this after the election and but recording it prior to it, so we don't know exactly what's going to happen. But why do you bookend it at the election of Donald Trump? What significance did that uh, 2016 election have in terms of this bookending this age? Yeah, well, I'll tell you, I, I conceived of the book in, in, you know, 2013 or 2014. Um, it took me, you know, what, with other projects, it took me a few years to, um, to write it. I think that, that the election of Trump, I, I, I think, is a good illustration that some of the tensions that I describe in the book were real. Um, so I wanted to mention it in the book. At the same time, the controversies of the Trump administration... Um, you know, they're, they're, they're live controversies. People are really, really passionate about them. It's tough to get people to look at anything in a kind of a settled manner when, you know, when you're talking about really hot political issues of the, of the moment. So, I, and so since the book was a history rather than a polemic, uh, it had to stop somewhere. And I think the election of Trump is a good place to stop it. 
since your book has come out, the nation has been roiled in uh, political strife, uh, rioting. Um, here in Minnesota, obviously, we are the epicenter of some of that with the killing of George Floyd and its aftermath there. What, since uh, your book has come out um, and all these things have happened in our political life and in our public culture, um, have they amplified some of the themes in your book? Have they made you rethink some of them? What have you seen thus far? Uh, I hope it doesn't surprise you to say I think that it actually vindicates uh, a lot of the, at least the framework that I've established for looking at, at these problems. I think that the the framework that these are arguments about rights and democracy and the vision of the constitutional country that we're, we're going to have, about, you know, about competing visions of what our constitution ought to be, I think that's the right framework. In terms of the the actual language of non-discrimination laws, you see that uh, its its victory or its um, enactment is almost total, yet you still see some pushing for the enactment of a federal Equal Rights Act. We have the same dynamic here in Minnesota with the uh, amendment, a constitutional amendment to ban uh, gender discrimination, even though we already have one of the earliest uh, state civil rights acts banning discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. What continues to drive the political movement for more non-discrimination laws and even non-discrimination super statutes, uh, despite the fact that uh, there are, these laws are fairly uh, entrenched and longstanding in a lot of places, including now um, in the federal government, even with the Bostick decision from uh, this past term? Yeah, I mean, I think the Baltic decision is a good example of how the process that I describe in the work in, in the book works. That that uh, the Baltic decision, uh, and to remind some of your listeners, was the one uh, decided by the Supreme Court over the summer that gives um, uh, gay and transgender people protection as a as a class under the under the Civil Rights Act, um, so that you can't just for because you don't like um, uh, the fact that he's a man who wears a dress to work or something like that. Um, what what drives this? Well, it's a this too is a kind of a a, a, a subtle and, and complicated aspect of the of the law. You know, the powers in the Civil Rights Act are kind of emergency powers. You know, the fact that. They were very strong medicine. The fact that the federal government is allowed to examine the ethnic composition of a of a company that, uh, as far as we know, has done nothing you know wrong. That is not alleged to have committed any crime. That was a kind of a unique intrusion into Americans' lives. What made it necessary was that there was the perception of a horrible miscarriage of justice in the South between sort of like violent sheriffs and crafty mayors and, and, and governors that required the federal government to have these emergency powers. When you need to claim these, when you feel you need to claim these emergency powers for another minority, tell us a story. I mean, there has to be some narrative that makes the emergency powers necessary, uh, uh, you know, of, of real bigotry and evil. And I think that, that so that, narr- narrative gets, that narrative gets deployed for 
gays or, or transgender people or whatever the group happens to be. Um, and uh, it tends to reframe these issues in a very contentious way, uh, you know, in which there is a real bad guy um, uh, involved in the status quo. Your book is historical and descriptive, as you have said, but do you offer any prescriptions about what is to be done to combat some of the the pathologies that have been unleashed by some of these noble impulses? I, you know, I, I, I really have tried to be rigorous about not offering anything like a, like a five or ten point plan, but I do think the source of, um, you know, the, the real... Uh, great facets of the American genius or the American national character is our ability to to create, you know, governing institutions and our be able our ability to to reach compromises and and so I haven't despaired of uh, of that. There may be, you know, I, I still hold out hope that there is a that there is a an way out of this. Wonderful. Well, Christopher Caldwell, we have been blessed to have you on The Bridge Builder today. Thanks for joining us. Again, the title of Christopher's book is The Age of Entitlement, America Since the 60s. He is contributing editor to the Claremont Review of Books, where you can also check out his very fine work. Christopher Caldwell, thanks for joining The Bridge Builder program today. Thank you. My pleasure. And we'll be back in a moment with our mailbag segment. Welcome back to The Bridge Builder, where we help you connect your Catholic faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and now it's time to jump into the mailbag to hear what comments and questions you've been sending our way. Kit, what's in this week's mailbag? Yeah, so one of our listeners emailed us to say she's heard some discussion about the Supreme Court taking up a case that involves Catholic social services and foster parents. She says, I'd just like to know more details about this case and what impacts it could have on foster kids and foster parents? Well, that's a great question and an important follow-up to our interview with Christopher Caldwell, uh, which discussed the impact of non-discrimination and civil rights laws on American public life and culture. And the case uh, involving uh, foster care in the city of Philadelphia is a good example of that. So the case is Fulton versus City of Philadelphia, in which the City of Philadelphia is discriminating against Catholic charities as an adoption provider precisely because it won't place children in same-sex households. And so as a result, uh, Catholic Charities is no longer to do adoption placements in the city of Philadelphia. Who does that hurt? It hurts uh, the kids most of all, of course, uh, because there's a, a really a strong need to place kids and have good placement agencies uh, for kids in foster care. Um, it hurts uh, the kids especially, but the families who seek to serve. Uh, and there's a number of plaintiffs uh, involved, including a number of African-American families, a number of kids, a number of people who've been served and have been successfully placed in the foster care system in Philadelphia. It's a terrible example of the way in which these non-discrimination laws, which do have a noble impulse and purpose to combat and remediate historic discrimination, are then being used to, uh, as a instead of a shield against discrimination, as a sword to persecute those who have opposing views. And so uh, this sort of a dogmatic uh, vision of equality 
in which no one can be offended by someone else's uh, exercise of their religious beliefs or their rights of conscience uh, has to be squelched and suppressed. And uh, that's really unfortunate because it's, and as in this case, in the city of Philadelphia, it's the kids who are being hurt. So the question before the court is, can uh, Philadelphia legitimately, the city of Philadelphia, deny uh, access to a government contract to be a social service provider in the adoption space uh, because of Catholic Charities' sincerely held religious beliefs uh, about the union of, mar- of marriage as the union of one man and one woman? And the best place to place uh, children uh, to have a stable home with the complementarity love of a mother and a father. And so that's an important consideration for the Supreme Court in that Fulton case. Uh, the case will be heard on November 4th. And so we'll, this uh, shortly uh, as this episode airs, you'll, this, we'll be right in the middle of the big discuss, public discussions around that case if it doesn't get overshadowed by the election. Uh, but at the same time, it's, it also raises another important issue of the court potentially revisiting the landmark case of Employment Division versus Smith, a case, in my judgment, wrongly decided by the great Justice Antonin Scalia, um, in which he said that basically laws of general applicability that don't specifically target religion receive the lowest form of scrutiny by the Supreme Court. So he essentially gutted First Amendment protections um, for religious actors in the public arena, stating instead that they should go to the legislature to get solutions to their problems if they feel they're being unjustly burdened by a particular law. Hopefully the court will revisit that decision and reinstate the prior rule um, that laws that demand, uh, that burden the free exercise of religion get strict scrutiny uh, by the court. So that means they have to meet the highest standard before they will be upheld. They have to um, uh, have serve a compelling governmental interest and not be overly restrictive. It has to be the least restrictive means of achieving that government end. So kind of some technical language there, but it's a really, really important case, certainly one to watch out for. If people want to learn more about that, they can go to the website dedicated to the case, freetofoster.com. Wonderful. Thanks. And listeners will definitely keep you posted and we'll be following that case closely. So Jason, before we go, we always want to leave our listeners with the bricks they need to build the bridge between faith and public life. Uh, what do you have in this week's bricklayer segment? How might they be able to start connecting with their elected officials? Well, the common good is built brick by brick, and that involves the work of all of us. Many hands make, like, make light work. A balance are now cast and being counted, but the work of being a faithful citizen does not cease once you cast your vote. In fact, voting is just one small aspect of what we call faithful citizenship. You took the time ahead of the election to form your conscience and to inform your vote. Now it's time for the ongoing work of transforming our state. As Catholics, we must continue to pray for our elected officials. Whether the person we voted for wins or loses, each elected official is going to need our prayers, that they would be open to the guiding of the Holy Spirit, and that they may seek wisdom so they will uphold life, dignity, and the common good. Not only should we continue to pray for our state and nation, but now is also the time to begin building bridges with our elected officials. One of the easiest ways to do this is to register for the Catholic Advocacy Network. The Catholic Advocacy Network is an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference to help you connect directly with your elected officials. By registering today, you will receive action alerts from the Catholic Advocacy Network. These alerts allow you to have your voice heard on important issues. So oftentimes we don't know what the big issues are, when we should speak about them, what we should say. So the Catholic Advocacy Network is your resource for understanding 
when the key issues are coming up before our state legislature or in Congress, gives you the tools and words to speak. You can personalize those messages. And because you're registered in the network and we have your address, when you click that button, it goes directly to your state senator and state representative. So a great and easy way with the click of the mouse to advance life, dignity, and the common good. You can register today to become a part of the Catholic Advocacy Network by going to mncatholic.org slash action center. Again, mncatholic.org slash action center, or just Google Catholic Advocacy Network. That's all the time we have for today. Listeners, you can be part of our mailbag segment. Just send any of your comments or questions to show at mncatholic.org or connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Then tune in next week to find out if we include your question or comment. Remember, you can catch up on past episodes online at mncatholic.org slash podcast or search for the Bridge Builder Podcast on your favorite podcast app. We've got some really great interviews in our podcast library, so I'd really encourage folks uh, to check that out. It's a fantastic resource. Thanks for tuning in today to The Bridge Builder. We'll be back again next week with another great guest, more of your comments and questions, and a new way for you to build bridges between faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, and for Kit Cross of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, thanks for listening, and have a blessed day.